Our suggested opening tells us that we can find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. How does this happen? How can we deal with the isms of this disease in a way that is healthy for ourselves? Welcome to episode 377 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Martha, Michaela, Mary, Gail, Stacy, and Kate. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Martha, Michaela, Mary, Gail, Stacy, and Kate, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any Melvin Step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today, and joining me today is Nancy. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Nancy. Thank you. We like to open with a reading. I asked you to bring one. I chose page 124, Encouraged to Change, May 3rd. Detachment. At first, it may sound cold and rejecting, not loving at all. But I have come to believe that detachment is actually a wonderful gift. I am allowing my loved ones the privilege and opportunity of being themselves. I do not wish to interfere with anyone's opportunities to discover the joy and self-confidence that can accompany personal achievements. If I am constantly intervening to protect them from painful experiences, I also do them a great disservice. As Mark Twain said, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. I find it painful to watch another person suffer or head down a road I believe leads to pain. Many of my attempts to rescue others have been prompted by my desire to avoid this pain. Today, I'm learning to experience my own fear, grief, and anguish. This helps me to be willing to trust the same growth process in others, because I know firsthand about the gifts it can bring. Today's reminder, sometimes it is more loving to allow someone else to experience the natural consequences of their actions, even when it is painful for us both. In the long run, when both of us will benefit. Today, I will put love first in my life. All I have to do is keep my hands off and turn my heart on from in all our affairs. Thank you. You wrote, you said you wanted to talk about a couple of things that we're going to connect, I hope. One is this idea of recovery, whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. Right. And the other thing that you said was the isms and dealing with them in a healthy way, something like that. I don't remember the exact wording now. I can see where the reading connects. I mean, detachment is one of the healthy ways that I certainly dealt with the isms of alcoholism and deal with the isms of lots of other behavior of the loved ones around me. Where did you want to start with this? I'm going to back up a little bit here. 
my, as you said so aptly at one time, calling your qualifier. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And you said you hated that word and that you would rather call that person your loved one. And I can honestly say that at times he is my loved one and sometimes he is my qualifier. This is my son that we are talking about who has been, had been sober for 27 years, had been in recovery for 27 years, started drinking when he was very young. I sometimes really begin to think, what does the word sober really mean? Does it really mean that they are free from the addiction? I'm going to say the addiction of alcoholism and therefore all is well. And uh, what I am finding more and more in the last five to six years that what we are dealing with, even though he is technically sober and in recovery, are all the things that are keeping us from having a healthy relationship, whether it is manipulating, isolating, controlling, narcissism, self-absorption. He is dealing with a great deal of anxiety, depression has been in quite a few, I'd say at least 12 different facilities in the last three years as a result of his anxiety and depression, even though he is technically sober. And that is harder to deal with than what we dealt with when he was actively drinking. That's a really strong statement. It is. It really is because I, I felt that when he was drinking, as horrible as it was, and all the things that went along with it, we knew what we were dealing with. We knew what we were dealing with. It was a disease. It, it is a disease. There was something concrete there. What we are dealing with now is tremendous emotional, psychological, mental issues that don't seem to be able to be brought to a point where we can work with it. Mm. I was reminded as you were speaking of the uh, sentence from this book, How Al-Anon Works, in the uh, discussion of step one. It says, Al-Anon does not promise that every alcoholic will get sober or that sobriety will solve our problems or fix our relationships. And that's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Right. He's lost his marriage. He's lost his professional career. He's lost his family. And we have not spoken with him since Thanksgiving. We go through these periods of isolation of him backing off. And the reason I read the part on detaching and detachment is because I have had to detach. I have had to turn this over to my higher power. I, I realize very clearly I've been in these rooms as long as he's been in recovery. So for over 28 years, I have coming to Al-Anon. And I have very much learned that it is not my will. It is not my control that I don't have the power, don't have come close to having the power to make this better. And I've had to detach for my own well-being and sanity and to take care of me. I have two other children. I have a wife. I have a husband. This cannot be my 100% focus any longer. Absolutely. Even when I was living with 
active alcoholism in my house, as you say, I had other responsibilities. I had right. a job. I had two preteen children at that point. Yeah, I was spending a lot of time trying to fix the alcoholism. And I know that that cost something to those other responsibilities. As you say, one of the things that, that we learn, I learned, sounds like you too, is that we put too much of ourselves into that attachment. Right. The ironic thing about it is, and there's so many readings on attachment because it's such an important concept, but they mostly all say something about how that attachment is actually not good for either of us. It's not good for me, and it's not good for my loved one. So learning to detach really helps both of us, but I do it for myself. And and I do it for myself as well, but I honestly believe there was a meeting yesterday and the week before about self-worth, about love, about acceptance. These are not new topics. These are not new thoughts. But what kept coming back was I have to continue to validate myself. I was brought up in an extremely close, loving family. There was no alcoholism anywhere in my family. I had a father who validated me every single day. When I called him once I was grown, he would never say, hi, Nancy. He would go, how's my wonderful, beautiful, fabulous daughter? And when he died... I thought to myself, now who's going to tell me this? Mm. And I can remember going to see a psychiatrist, and she said to me, you're going to do it. You're going to look yourself in the mirror, and you're going to say, I am bright, I am capable, I am attractive, whatever it is, but you're going to have to validate yourself. As much as you loved your father doing it for you, he almost did do you a bit of a disservice because yourself were was based on how he thought about you. So I find that by practicing detachment, I have my own self-worth. I can feel good enough about myself. But I think what is happening, and I'm not a psychiatrist, is that my loved one is really upset because I am not running back to him and saying, I'll help you, I'll help you, I can make this better for you. And because I am detaching, he doesn't want any part of me. You know, I've let him down in his mind. Because you're not propping him up anymore. Exactly. Exactly. I am not picking him up, dusting him off and saying, let's go on. I can make this better for you. I am saying to this 49-year-old man, you have choices. You have made choices. I encourage you to talk to your sponsor. I encourage you to go to your meetings, but I have to do what I have to do, and I can't do it for you. And he doesn't want to hear that. This is where you are now, 20-something years later. I'm sure that this was a process, it was a journey that you went through. Do you want to explore how that happened and what brought you to this place now? Well, it was a journey, you know, and it it has been a process and it has been 
by any means easy or quick. I had no other choice. I came into the rooms as, as we hear time and time again, crawling, crying, saying, I don't think I'm going to make it. I was the only one in my family who came into the rooms. We supported each other, but this was not something where my husband and I were going to do this together. I was frightened out of my mind. I was a lot younger. The kids were younger. My husband was on his path, work-wise and whatever. I had no other choice but to try to figure this all out. And I became as educated as I could about the disease. For whatever reason, God grabbed me and said, I'm going to walk beside you on this one. I'm going to hold your hand on this one. I truly believe that that's exactly what happens with me 24-7, that I'm never alone. I have a sponsor. I go to meetings. I journal like crazy. I probably have 27 journals in my closet. I choose to keep those journals because it reminds me where I've been. I look at them from time to time, and they're all dated, and I'll go back, and it's very helpful for me to see the path that I have been on. I have tried to do everything that has been encouraged for me to do. And certainly I can't tell you I do it perfectly and I don't do it all the time. But as I say, I just didn't have any other choice. I had tremendous anxieties myself. And I knew that I needed to get as much help as I possibly could to understand how to uh, live my life with a very seriously ill alcoholic. If I understand what you said, you came to Al-Anon when he went into his rehab. For the first time. For the first time. Because you did say (laughs) recovery, whether he's drinking or not. So I gather that there must have been some relapse in there as well. There was. He went in basically to get us off his back, came out a month later, drank immediately. We sent him back in because at that time he was very much underage and we had the ability to do that, came out, went back in and stayed for a a much longer period of time and really seemed to get it. And he went 27 years as a recovering alcoholic and last year relapsed and started from scratch. I know that there are many differences between when he was drinking as a minor and now, but I'm wondering how that relapse felt different to you, how you felt different in that relapse between then and more recently, or how you felt the same. No, totally different. I I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked when he was in a facility where he was in very bad shape, suicidal ideation, really very seriously ill mentally. People would say to me, is he drinking again? Or do you think he's going to drink again? And my answer was absolutely not. Sobriety is the most important thing to him. Mm. He will not drink again. How stupid was I? How naive was I? 
he did it and you could have bowled me over. So yes, it was an entirely different feeling. He came back from it fairly quickly. I would say within a couple of weeks, he had stopped again. But for that couple of weeks, he lost all those years. He lost all those years on top of everything else that he was feeling. And I think that was the crowning blow for his family and for his wife. The marriage was over. But again, he is back in recovery. He says he is going to his meetings. He has a sponsor. But, you know, who knows? It was a huge surprise. You did not expect it. How did it affect you when it happened? Did it drag you back down into the feelings of, I have to fix this, I have to help him? Or were you able to practice that detachment and be, let's say, loving and supportive without trying to pick him up? Totally. I I did nothing to help. He was down in North Carolina when it happened. He was by himself in a hotel. We were not communicating, so I was hearing this through the police. I can honestly tell you I was angry. I was furious. I was terribly sad. I was terribly disappointed, and I was terribly frightened. Mm-hmm. But... Unlike years and years ago, I was able to one more time say, there is absolutely nothing I can do about this. I am sitting here in Florida. I am not going to run down there, and he's going to have to figure it out. And if, God forbid, he takes his life or something god-awful like that happens, I can't do any more. And my husband and my children were in the same territory. I have to say, even though my husband has never been to an Al-Anon reading, we have very much been on the same page throughout all of this. That's helpful. I hear from people who are not on the same page as their co-parent. Maybe they're separated or maybe they're not. And that certainly leads to to disagreement, to conflict with within the couple. Totally. Um, and... My feeling here is it also is sending a mixed message and it's not, I think, not helping the, the person who is their child or whatever. I have also heard from people who are struggling with this question of how do I not help, not control, not fix my adult child who is active in this disease and maybe feeling guilty because they can't help because they understand from having had some Al-Anon that that's not really helpful. I, I feel this thing where I want to help, but I can't do it because I need to take care of myself and I need to give my loved one the dignity of, you know, their own path. But what if they die? What if they die? Is that my fault? And and I hear this expressed and it's not an easy place to be, you know? What if I turned that around and maybe this sounds selfish, 
what if I die? Mm-hmm. My feeling is that we're not getting any younger. We're getting older. And what a waste of time that we could have been together, that we could have been enjoying each other, that I could have been, that we could have been enjoying his children. And I, I really don't even know his children that well as a result of this. But my greatest fear is what if God forbid something happens to one of us, meaning my husband or I, and we never had that time to reconcile or talk or make amends. I can sleep at night. I can honestly sleep at night. I don't have any regrets. I don't think he can say the same thing. I think he's terribly troubled. And then I think that, that there is far more weight on his shoulders than on mine. We were going away recently a couple of weeks ago. And my biggest fear was that if something happened while we were gone to us, we never would have had those last words. One of the things that, that I hear here is that you want to always be in a place where you don't have anything blocking you from him. He may be blocking himself from you. When I was in that place, when I was with the act of drinking, which has not been in my house for a while, there were times when I was just so angry and so not detached, but distance separated. This person who I loved, who was living in the same house with me, but sometimes there was that wall between us. I was listening to an Elon speaker tape recently, and he talked about this bridge that was near their house that he had visions of his wife driving the car off the bridge into the icy river and dying, and sometimes wishing that was going to happen. I had those same kinds of feelings at times. And if that was the last thing that I felt about my loved one before it happened, that would be so hard for me to live with. Oh, so. oh terrifying. I have to tell you that if you, maybe up until recently, if you said to him, who is the most important person in your life other than your children? Who has been your constant? Who has been your biggest support system? Who has understood you the most? He would say me. 100% hands down. We have had a phenomenal relationship. He has, because I go to Al-Anon, work the steps, understand them. We've had tremendous conversations about the program and how it works and AA and, and Al-Anon at all. But not obviously not recently, but I have to say again, I have had to set boundaries. I, I have had to let him know that I love you. I don't like you very much a lot of the time, but I do love you. I, I saw this little piece the other day and I thought that it almost said everything that, that I'm feeling. It said, I will stand tall, not because I am the tallest, but because I know who I am. 
I will be strong, not because I am the fittest, but because I have been broken many times and know I will mend. I will be vulnerable, not because I am weak, but because it is my biggest strength. I will live through my heart, not because I am not wise, but because it is where my wisdom lies. I will reside in faith, not because it is a faith, but because it is the only anchor. And I will always believe, not because I am an idolist, but because I have lived long enough to know it is what the journey is all about. Where did you find that? It was from Maria Shriver. It's called The Sunday Paper. I printed it out, so I taped it to my computer so I can read it all the time. But that is what it is all about. That is my journey. Not because I'm doing things necessarily right. It's just that I'm doing the best I can. And I never feel I'm doing it alone. I never feel I'm doing it alone. I have a a little, I don't think analogy is the word, it's a visual that I have that if I'm in an uncomfortable situation or I am just not quite feeling as safe as I would like to feel, I always have this visual that if I'm sitting someplace or in a jerk that I move over and make room for God. I literally almost physically move over. If I'm doing something that is just not as comfortable for me, if I move over and know that he, my higher power, whom I call God, is sitting right next to me, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yes, it does. What do you want to say to somebody who's at the beginning of your journey? I really think that they, that whoever is starting this journey, I think they have to be patient. I think they have to be loving and kind. I think they have to be open to what is being said. There are awful lot of wise people in these rooms. When we were going through COVID, I did a lot of Zoom meetings. Every single day, listen to one of your episodes when I'm walking. There isn't a time I don't hear exactly what I need to hear. But we're never recovered. It's never over. <laughs> and I think that whoever is starting this journey has to understand that and has to understand that this is a lifetime. And the old three C's of I didn't cause it, I can't control it, I can't cure it. But really believing that and really listening to that and doing whatever they can do to bring about some peace and serenity, but knowing that it is a process and not giving up. Thank you. You know, we're all here because our lives have been affected by somebody else's disease, whether it's blatant with drinking and drugging, or whether it's hiding in the isms that are still there after the substance is gone. I think there are many ways to recovery. What has worked for me, and I'm guessing for you, is the Al-Anon program, the 12 steps, and the support of the people in the program, the support of the the literature, the support of our higher power that I found here and you found 
And that will always be there, both the effects on us and the recovery that we've found, I think, will always be there. I need frequent reminders. I go to meetings, I read the literature, I do this podcast because it helps to keep me centered in my recovery. And sounds like you're on that path too. Well, I I can't wait to get to my meetings. I have one in particular that I go to every week. My sponsor is there. I look forward to seeing her. I look forward to getting a big hug. And it's a very tight group. And it's where I feel the safest. It's where I feel I can be the most open and honest. No one's judging me. No one's criticizing me. No one's talking about me, hopefully, when I leave. And you know what, Spencer? I spent a lot of years people pleasing. Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of years wearing that mask and trying to be who I thought other people wanted me to be, who I thought my husband wanted me to be, because I thought that was more accepting. And what a waste of time and energy. And for the first time, I'm able to be me. I'm able to be all the warts and and all and be able to say, you know what? I'm really hurting today. I'm really in pain. I'm really not doing too well. And this is the only place where they get that. Because other people will say, don't be ridiculous. You're fine. What do you have to be upset about? You've got it all. And that's just not the case. What a gift to have that place that you can go to. Yeah. Okay. Any closing words? I pray. I pray every day. I pray all the time that there will be a better time, a better path ahead of us. But until then, just continue doing what I'm doing. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. I ask my guests to pick uh, some songs that are meaningful to you in your recovery. So what is the first one you want to talk about? The first song is Rascal Flats, who I happen to love. And the song is My Wish. I always love this song because it reinforces choices and detachment. I hope the days come easy and the moments pass slow. And each road leads you where you want to go. And if you're faced with a choice and you have to choose, I hope you choose the one that means the most to you. But more than anything, my wish for you is that life becomes all you want it to be. Your dreams stay big. Your worries stay small. You never need to carry more than you can hold. And while you're out there getting to where you're getting to, I hope somebody loves you. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? I was at a meeting on Saturday where we were talking about the second tradition, which says, for our group purpose, there is but one authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. There's a lot of ways that I can look at that tradition and think about how it 
supports the Al-Anon program, how it makes the Al-Anon program possible, how it shows up in my personal life. Well, on Saturday, we read from an Al-Anon book called Paths to Recovery. It has a chapter for each step and each tradition and each concept of service. So we were reading the chapter on tradition too. In that reading, there were three sentences that stood out to me that I had not yet highlighted in my book. They obviously were meaningful to me in this time. It says, we learn to pray for guidance before we launch into our opinion on a controversy. Learning to listen respectfully to each other, especially those who oppose us or who we do not particularly like, helps us grow in tolerance. Listening also helps us discover the wisdom hidden in unlikely sources. Those three sentences really struck me because they're active and relevant in my life today or in my life for a long time. The first one, we learn to pray for guidance before we launch into our opinion. Yeah, I. my wife says that I come from a family of interrupters, and it's absolutely true. And one of the things that I've been uh, learning, I've been practicing, one of my character defects that I have been asking my higher power to help me eliminate, to take from my life, or at least reduce, is this urge to interject my opinion. Maybe in the middle of what somebody else is speaking. So practicing the pause, the pause in which I can say, is this really something I need to say right now? Is this really something that I need to say at all? Has been helpful. Uh, a friend of mine told me about a, a practice that he uses that is really only useful in a video conference, a Zoom meeting, if you will, which is that he puts himself on mute so that if he gets the desire to open his mouth and say something, he first has to find the mute button to unmute himself. I, I try to practice that because that forces that pause on me. That's fabulous. So there's these little things that, that I can practice that my higher power didn't give me the pandemic so that I could learn how to mute myself, but I can take advantage of this thing that has in so many ways been a negative in so many lives recently. I can find some practice I can find some help in it. So that's that's one thing. Learning to listen respectfully to each other, especially those who oppose us or we do not particularly like. And the next sentence also, the wisdom in unlikely sources. But I want to think about this one for a minute because I'm nearing retirement age at my job. I haven't quite quit, but I actually have set an approximate date, which is sometime next year, probably towards the end of next year. I've been with this company over 25 years, really since the beginning. And so I have both very deep knowledge and very strong opinions about what we do and how we do it. My job now is to let go of that. My job now is to impart that knowledge to the people who are going to be there after I'm gone. And my job now is to let them start to feel their ownership of what we do, that it's theirs to build and theirs to continue, 
and not mine because I want to leave what I've helped to build in the hands of people who want to continue to build it, continue to make it better. And this is hard for me, you know. I consciously actually use that first thing. Okay, is this something I need to say right now? How do I need to say it? Do I need to say it? When I'm inviting, I'm encouraging the other people in my work group to start to express their ideas, which often are not the same as what I would have said. They're often not the same of what I, as what I would have done. They might be better. They might not be, but I have to let go of that. I can say, this is what I think, but I have to stop saying, no, that's not the way we do it. And then the third one also relates to that because my gut reaction, my quick reaction to an idea of doing something a different way from the way we've done it before is, oh, that's not going to work. Or we don't have time to do that. When I act on that reaction, I'm going to miss some really good ideas. I'm going to miss some wisdom from what seems like an unlikely source, maybe. And this happens also to me, obviously, in in Elena meetings all the time. I've been in some meetings for many years, and there are people who've been in that same meeting for many years. I get a preconceived notion in my head, a prejudgment of what they're going to say, because there are some people who often say pretty much the same thing from week to week, except when they don't, except when they don't. And if I'm shutting down and not listening to that person because I already, quote, know what they're going to say, I'm going to miss that thing, that pearl that comes from them when they say something different. Again, this is something that that Al-Anon has, in some ways, going to meetings has forced me to practice. The meetings that I go to do not have crosstalk. Generally, the practice is you can share it most once. Some meetings are too big for everybody to share once. And so I get lots and lots of practice of listening. So many people are like, oh my God, traditions. I don't want to talk about traditions. They're boring. When I stop and I listen, I heard some stuff that just really spoke to my life today and that that helps me to understand how to do what I need to do today Uh and tomorrow. That's what I found in recovery this week. How about you? How's recovery working in your life today? Well, I can say ditto to everything you just said. (laughs) Everything. If my husband were sitting here right now, he'd say, she doesn't listen. I finish his sentences. Or I think I know what he's going to say, so I already respond before he's even gotten the words out. And he's probably right. I hate to admit it, but he's probably right. What you're talking about is the word ego comes into my head and a feeling of either self or less than. Mm. You know, we we all want to think that we can do it better than anybody else and that you need me. I am indispensable. And I have found 
that in so many of my volunteer positions that I've had over the years, I've always gone to a leadership position because I like that. Now, is that a feeling of ego? Probably to some degree. Is that a feeling that I can do it better than anybody else? Probably to to some degree. But it does give me great satisfaction and a feeling of self-worth. When you talk about retiring and is somebody else going to be able to do what you're, what you've been doing? Most likely, yes, but they're going to be doing it in a different way. And that's not all wrong. And that's not all bad. And that's what I have to learn as well. There's a saying in the closing of Al-Anon, and I always add in this one sentence where it says, we're not perfect. And I will say we are perfect, but we are excellent. I truly believe that. I truly believe that. And I find that what I am trying very hard to do is to listen better, especially now in my recovery, and especially to friends who are struggling with one thing or another or have an issue or need to talk. I want to listen better. I want to not say, oh, I know the answer to that, or I know what you can do. I try to keep it in the eye and I try to use the word encourage. And I was talking to a friend today and she was talking about something with one of her kids and wanting to help them to a degree that I felt was not healthy. And all I'd said to her was, I encourage you to think about this decision. Not you need to do such and such. And that's something I would have not done had I not had the program. That's something that I work very hard on and what I try to do day in and day out. As I read at one time, you tell your story to those who deserve and have the right to hear it. And not everybody wants to hear my story. Not everybody should hear my story or would understand my story. But when I'm with a very dear person who I think truly gets it and gets me, then I'll tell them my story. But if they haven't earned the right to hear it, then I don't tell it. Mm -hmm. Somebody was asking me today, I had on two bracelets and one said hope and one said strength. And they said, why do you wear that? And I said, someday we'll talk about it. Someday we'll sit down and talk about it. On the golf course probably isn't the right place to talk <laughs> about it. And I'm not sure that this is the right person to hear it either. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, I'm a very good listener. I'm a very good friend. I can honestly tell you that. And I think if you talk to 10 of my friends, they probably <clears throat> very honestly say the same thing. I hold them very dear and I treasure my friends tremendously. But I, as I said, I've taken that mask off and I'm, I surround myself with authentic people. And if they're not authentic, Spencer, then I have no use for them anymore. I'm just too old for it. I'm not playing the game. No interest in playing that game. No interest in who's better, who's a better athlete, who could do this better, who has more money. Just not playing that game anymore. 
It hasn't brought me any happiness in the past, and it's not going to bring me any more happiness now. Mm-hmm. So that's how my program works for me. Time and time again, it never lets me down. It right. never lets me down. Thank you. We welcome your thoughts. We're listening. You can join our conversation. You can leave a voicemail or send us an email with your questions, your strength, your hope. Nancy, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And you can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. And we'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions about today's topic of recovery, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not, and, of course, dealing with the isms in a healthy way. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the books and other things that we read from, videos for the music, and some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. Our second song, what is this one? This one is True Colors by Cindy Lauper. And interestingly enough, this was the song that my son and his wife danced to at their wedding. So it has always hit me especially hard, especially now that they're not together. You with the sad eyes, don't be discouraged. Oh, I realize it's hard to take courage in a world full of people. You can lose sight of it all. The darkness inside you can make you feel so small. Can't remember when I last saw you smiling. The world makes you crazy and you've taken all you can bear. Just call me up. Because I'll always be there. Now it's time for your voices. Anonymous Mom writes, Hi Spencer, thank you for all of your service. I'm wondering if there is any list of neutral responses for Al-Anon. I'm also looking for examples of loving, supporting, detachment responses. I need them For my adult son who is struggling to launch, and of course, given his situation, I am struggling with my own fear and anxiety about it, so I want to tell him what to do, or my opinion of what he should do. My sponsor suggested that I try to practice detachment while saying loving things that encourage and empower him, rather than continue the cycle of learned helplessness. But so far, I can only think of, I trust that you will figure it out, or I know you can do it. I'm desperate for more practical ideas, especially when he's asking for my help. I'm not sure how to respond in a way that puts the responsibility on him. He is prone to shutting down, and our pattern is either that I overhelp, manage, and take care of it for him and enable him further into learned helplessness. On the other side, I've found that in my frustration and my own depression and anxiety, my responses to him can shut him down or trigger him. It seems I can be abandoning. For example, if I say, "Mm, okay, yell, It's your life. Take some responsibility. By your age, I was already doing X, Y, Z. 
needless to say, I don't know how to be that loving, wise parent that trusts he will be okay and can assure him, because I genuinely feel sick and worried about it if he will ever launch. I've already struggled with other family members becoming homeless on disability or having the mental health to be fully functioning but choosing to be a deadbeat, and I worry that he is on that path, and I really can't financially support him anymore. I would really appreciate if anyone has any experience, strength, or hope on this, how to not enable but empower and use detachment with love. In particular, I hope the Recovery Show community can please suggest really practical suggestions of phrases and what to say. Thank you in advance. Kind regards, Anonymous Mom of Adult Children in Southern California. I responded to Anonymous Mom. I said, I've got a photo of a page of neutral responses, which you can find at the bottom of episode 249 show notes. That's therecovery.show slash 249. Also, and this partly comes out of, I think, my experience as being a sponsor in the program. You never know what you're going to learn. I've found that Asking questions back is often a good method of guiding someone to making their own decisions or finding an answer that works for them. For example, if he's trying to decide between two options, you can ask, what is positive about this choice and what is not so good about this choice for each of them? As he hears himself listing them out, he may be able to say, oh, now I see. Choice A is better for me right now. And also find that usually specific queries are more likely to get a response than a general, what do you think, question. Some other questions that I might ask, what might happen if? What good things can happen? What's the worst that could happen? Realizing, of course, that this could be a dangerous question for someone who's already a worrier. What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? What would you have to do before you could take this action? Give him time and space to think and respond. Silence can be a very powerful tool. There's a few ideas. I hope that you find something you can use there. And I'm sure that we'll hear from a listener or two with some other great ideas. David left us a voicemail. Hi, Dr. Spencer. Uh, this is David K., grateful member of Al-Anon and adult child as well. I'm calling one I want to just express level of gratitude for, again, all you do for helping to revitalize and re-energize many of us who need a meeting between meetings and maybe need a little bit more than what we can get out of our existing meetings that we happen to attend, or in fact, uh, providing a space for those of us who maybe don't go to meetings. But I'm calling today just to share a specific situation that I'm dealing with, with a loved one who is now incarcerated due to their drinking. As a longtime member since my teenage years, and of course I've had several relapses. My own recovery date is last year, May 16th of uh, 2021, when I kind of really fell to my knees and got back into the program. Because I realized I've been trying to force solutions with my loved one, stopping drinking, trying to control that, putting boundaries uh, or threats against them, and not really living compassionately or empathetically towards the alcoholic. I think what really was happening with me was I was living in resentment, control, and I forgot all of my program resources because I really thought that I could control the situation and really fix it and stop my alcoholic loved one from drinking and maybe also stop whatever consequences were coming. But when I realized I couldn't do that, 
and began to let go and detach in the most loving way I possibly could. We did find ourselves as a family in a situation where now, the last year, four months, my loved one was in a rehab, found sobriety, thankfully, and I struggled with how we say, you know, I can be happy whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. During the sobriety, I'm finding happiness, contentment, revitalization of our relationship, re-energize with my return to the Al-Anon program, to in-person meetings, online meetings, and, and your podcast. But I struggle with still trying to control and not be resentful of our current situation. So I'm keeping my, my program up. Because of our family situation, it has changed. It has impacted us. My loved one was at rehab for about four months last year and now is incarcerated for three months this year. So we'll have six months within a 12-month period where they've been away from our family. And, and while this is extraordinarily challenging and frustrating, What's really happened as a result is my higher power has provided in significant ways with help with childcare for our son, with assistance for people at work who are gentle, helpful, and accommodating. These weren't things that I thought would happen. Of course, I catastrophized what would happen in my head, having some hope that a life would not be unmanageable. And sure enough, life is not unmanageable. It is challenging but not unmanageable. And uh, what's happening, I think, as a result, you know, the black thing in all of this is really being forced to take a look at myself and my part of the problem and focusing on me and not on the alcoholic or the disease or controlling and being hypervigilant about how we navigate the, the problem or the disease of alcoholism in our family. And when I do that, I feel better. I sleep better. My health is better. And it's, someone said, hands off pays off. I, I love that saying. And I'm reminding myself of that on a daily basis. Hands off pays off. How important is it? Go and let God. And can, like, I'm continuing to do the one, two, three, one, two, three walk. And it's helping little by little, focusing on the next thing that has to be accomplished. So I I thank you for what you do. I thank you for your podcast. We missed you a ton because we haven't heard your voice in a few weeks and hope you're doing well with your health and well-being. And thanks for all you do. Thanks for everybody's shares. Without you all, we can't have a program. It's a program of relationship. So thank you for all you do. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, David, for sharing that experience, strength, and hope about how recovery is working in your life. We also got a voicemail from Kelsey. Hi, Spencer. This is Kelsey calling from California. I just wanted to call about the episode that was just posted. My recovery is not traditional on yours, episode 374. Um, I'm really new to recovery. I'm in my first 90 days. My qualifier is my father, but I'm coming to an awareness, a possibility that my partner is also a qualifier to me. In Having to communicate with him about his drinking, my sponsor sent me a reading that I just wanted to share. Letting go of those wrong recovery. We can go forward with our life and recovery, even though someone we love is not yet recovering. Picture a bridge. On one side of the bridge, it is cold and dark. We stood there with others in the cold and darkness, doubled over in pain. Some of us developed an eating disorder to cope with the pain. Some drank, some used other drugs, 
Some of us lost control of our sexual behavior. Some of us obsessively focused on addicted people's pain to distract us from our own pain. Many of us did both. We developed an addictive behavior and distracted ourselves by focusing on other addicted people. We did not know there was a bridge. We thought we were trapped on a cliff. Then some of us got lucky. Our eyes opened by the grace of God because it was time. We saw the bridge. People told us what was on the other side. Warmth, light, and healing from our pain. We could barely glimpse or imagine this, but we decided to start the trek across the bridge anyway. We tried to convince the people around us on the cliff that there was a bridge to a better place, but they wouldn't listen. They couldn't see it. They couldn't believe. They were not ready for the journey. We decided to go alone because we believed and because people on the other side were cheering us onward. The closer we got to the other side, the more we could see and feel that what we had been promised was real. There was light, warmth, healing, and love. The other side was a better place. But now there is a bridge between those on the other side and earth. Sometimes we may be tempted to go back and drag them over with us, but it cannot be done. No one can be dragged or forced across this bridge. Each person must go at his or her own choice when the time is right. Some will come, some will stay on the other side. The choice is not ours. We can love them. We can wave to them. We can holler back and forth. We can cheer them on as others have cheered and, and encouraged us. But we cannot make them come over to us. If our time has come to cross the bridge, or if we have already crossed and are standing in the light and warmth, we do not have to feel guilty. It is where we are meant to be. We do not have to go back to the dark cliff because another's time has not yet come. The best thing we can do is stay in the light because it reassures others that there is a better place. And if others ever do decide to cross the bridge, we will be there to cheer them on. Today, I will move forward with my life despite what others are doing or not doing. I will know it is my right to cross the bridge to a better life, even if I must leave others behind to do that. I will not feel guilty. I will not feel ashamed. I know that where I am now is a better place and where I'm meant to be. And to me, the reading just underscored that even though my recovery is for me and I need to keep the focus on myself, the most helpful I can be to the people around me is to stand in the warmth to show them that there is warmth and there is light. And I can't make anybody come before they're ready, but I can stand there and show them that there is recovery. Thank you so much for your show. It's meant a great deal to me in my first 90 days. I'm almost there. I think in nine days, I will no longer be a newcomer or at least I won't have to raise my hand at meeting. Thank you so much, Spencer. All right. Bye-bye. And thank you, Kelsey, for sharing that reading. That's a great reading. I love it. Nancy wrote, Hi, Spencer. I'm responding to your latest episode. My recovery is not dependent on yours. My son was in rehab for 14 months and now is living on his own and has relapsed very seriously, is in danger from his alcohol abuse. I want to help him, but I know I can't. I want to put him into rehab, but I know it doesn't help if he doesn't want it. I want to tell him what the right thing to do is, but I know my words are not welcome. So all I can do is help myself. Your podcast has been such a good support for me in the last two years, and it has also helped me find support groups that I can meet with regularly to keep me balanced. When I can't do anything for the one I love, it is a very difficult place to be in, but I know I can only take care of myself and find the support I need. Please continue your podcast because it is such a good source of support for those living with a loved one with a substance abuse disorder. 
I have to seek serenity for myself, and that's all I can do. Thank you, Nancy. And wow, it's a tough place to be. Rich writes in response to the newcomer episode and suggests that for people who are having trouble with the God language in the 12 steps, that there are agnostic free thinker recovery meetings, both AA and Al-Anon, and that you might consider that. Thanks, Rich, for writing on the Recovery Show website at therecovery.show slash online. There is a note about an agnostic Al-Anon group called Any Faith or None AFG, and there's an email address you can write to for meeting information. So that's at therecovery.show slash online. Marilyn wrote, Dear Spencer, your podcast has been an invaluable source of wisdom, strength, and hope, not only when dealing with a loved one's addiction, but to pretty much everything in life. Work, friends, our children, you name it. It's honest and heartfelt. There are no quick fixes to the curveballs life throws at us. But your podcast offers new light and perspective with gentleness. Thank you, Marilyn. Wow, thank you. I really appreciate those words. Tracy said, Spencer, I listened to your podcast on codependency. I think it was podcast 66. You did this one on your own. I wanted to tell you, you were so helpful and did an amazing job. Thank you for making a difference in my life. The meetings are great, but this is a great add-on. Appreciate all the work you do to reach out to people in need. Tracy. Thanks, Tracy. And as you note, meetings are great. I hope that nobody is substituting for meetings with this podcast, but adding to what you get from your meetings, from your literature, and so on. Jennifer says, my AH, which I think is alcoholic husband, passed recently. I have very conflicted feelings, but I'm struggling with resentment as I'm discovering how much parental alienation was going on. I knew there was some, but now that he's gone, so much is coming to light. I'm dealing with the devastation of my character assassination to the point I've lost my kids. So I guess I'm suggesting a podcast on parental alienation because it's so incredibly painful. Thank you, Jennifer. This is one where I have to reach out to you, the listener. If you want to share, if if you'd like to do a podcast episode about your experience with parental alienation, which I assume means where the alcoholic spouse has alienated the children against the non-alcoholic spouse. That's that's the way I read that. If you have experience, strength, and hope to share about this, let me know. Drop a line to feedback at therecovery.show. Thanks. Kim sent an email titled, How God Works. Dear Spencer, first of all, thank you. I've been a listener of your incredible podcast, The Recovery Show, for several years and a grateful member of Al-Anon for over 15 Your podcast never fails to bring exactly what I need, exactly when I need it. I can only imagine how many hours you put into making this show everything that it is. The way you reference past shows with links and give resources to your listeners is incredible. I often listen to an episode twice because the first time around I'm busy reacting, commenting in my head and thinking, thank you, thank you for talking about this subject and wondering how you put all those great episodes together without fail time and again. The second time around, I just listen and let it sink in. We live in California, and a year ago last August, my boyfriend of four years lost his beautiful mountain home in one of the devastating wildfires out here and was diagnosed with a type of chronic leukemia within the same week. He moved in with me at that point, something which we had not planned on but became a necessity. 
Also, my daughter was nearing the end of a very high-risk pregnancy, and I was driving almost two hours each way to San Francisco weekly to help out until the baby came. All of this in the middle of a pandemic. At that point, I let go of my recovery in the sense that I stopped attending Zoom meetings and I let go of listening to your podcast and my daily readings. I just couldn't think about anything except what was right in front of me. I thought my job was to take care of everyone else. This is so counterproductive, but it's exactly what I did. I just couldn't handle anything that reminded me of sadness or the painful subject of living with the effects of someone else's drinking. And since I was no longer a child living in an alcoholic home and no longer in an alcoholic marriage, I decided it was safe to step away for a bit. So I let go of my program day by day. I survived in isolation and denial. I began having a lot of anxiety and reactivity and couldn't figure out what was going on. Why everything, and especially the way I reacted to everything, seemed so much worse and out of control than ever. Fast forward a year, still surviving in isolation, and a dear friend who happens to be my neighbor came over to ask me again about Al-Anon and to tell me again that she was considering leaving her marriage because of the effect her husband's drinking was having on her and their family. She had attended a few Al-Anon meetings with me prior to the pandemic and was familiar with the program. It felt so good to remember all the things I've learned and talk about the program. Then she told me that her mom had been an ACA. She said they had never talked about her own husband's drinking and her mom had never shared with her that she had been an active member of ACA. She found out because her mom passed away recently and she had found her mom's big red book and all of her journals and writings. She cried and told me she wished she had known and wished she had shared her feelings about her husband's drinking with her mom. As I listened, I began to feel very emotional and very stirred up with a barrage of uncomfortable feelings. One thing it brought up was that I had never really talked to my adult daughters about how growing up in an alcoholic home may have lasting effects for them. I had shared my own story with them about growing up in an alcoholic and very dysfunctional family and about the effect of their dad's alcoholism on our marriage, but I had never discussed with them the obvious fact that they too are ACAs and may have their own set of issues to deal with and let them know that I was there for them to talk to. I realized we had never had that specific conversation. About an hour after talking with my neighbor, I was driving to do errands and listening to a podcast. It ended, and randomly, parenthesis or not, the recovery show came on. I hadn't listened to it in over a year, and it just began playing. It was episode 367 with Andrea talking about being an ACA. My heart just caught in my throat as I thought, of course, this just came on at exactly the right time. I listened and cried and just let all the emotions come. You see, in all my years in Al-Anon, I'd never fully dealt with the fact that I am an ACA. My mom has passed away over 25 years ago, and the thing that brought me crawling on my knees to Al-Anon was having been in two long-term marriages to men I loved, each with progressive problems with alcohol. I just hadn't really explored the effect of my childhood because it didn't seem as relevant as all the years I'd spent in marriages as an adult. Wrong! This all happened a few weeks ago, and since then I've begun reading the Big Red Book and attended my first ACA meeting via Zoom. I've also listened to several episodes of Andrea's podcast, Adult Child, which have brought up so much for me. But one of the things that has actually felt the best and most comforting and supportive of my reentry into recovery has been listening to the recovery show every single day again. No matter the subject, the speaker, the letter or voicemail you read, I learn something and feel connected to all of you and my path. It's like I've come home again. So once again, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you for your time and for your dedication to this process. 
With love and appreciation, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much. Things like that let me know that what I'm doing matters. And wow, what a God wink there for you, huh? Just when you needed it, randomly, as you say, the recovery show comes on as you're listening to podcasts. Got a review on Apple Podcasts from somebody who signs Blessed CSR about episode 376, My Husband. This episode was the most powerful, articulate, thoughtful share I have yet to hear. Her calm and loving expression of her marriage to her loving husband, who silently battled his disease, was such a profound story of love and loss at the same time. I felt God's loving presence and compassion in her story and her brave resolve in the end because of God, her deep love for her husband, and the angels that carried her through. Thank you for sharing your beautiful heart. God bless you. Thank you for this podcast. Well, thank you. Wow. And and thanks to the person who sent that share. It touched me and clearly other people deeply. Mary Lou writes, Hi, Spencer. I received your invitation to reply to the newcomer regarding specific issues they expressed concern about. I just listened to the podcast and I didn't hear anybody speak to the issue of fellowship or service per se. I was very angry when I came to Al-Anon. I was, was resentful that I had to be there when my family member wasn't going to meetings. I did feel a little bit, maybe 10%, better in meetings than outside of them. I now recognize that I had waited long enough to come that I had the gift of desperation. I could relate to the concerns about not wanting to get involved at fellowship. As my first foray into fellowship, I went with a number of other members of my Saturday group to a local conference that included AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen. I can't say that I enjoyed going to the conference, but it was a very eye-opening experience. We went to a number of different talks, and it was enlightening. I could relate to all of the speakers in some way. We also ate together as a group and spent time talking in between the events. It was the first time I could really see a life after the events that had brought me to the program. In fact, a number of the AA speakers referenced having their own children or other family members in the program. It opened my mind to the idea that the stigma I still felt about my family member could be discussed and lessened. I also heard an interesting podcast that discussed fellowship as an important element of healing. We know how much isolation encourages and results from alcoholism. Going to a group, belonging to a group, recognizing that the disease is so widespread, healing and growing together, for me, that's been a super important aspect of healing. Just as important as going to meetings and having a sponsor. There are times when I've gone to fellowship after the meeting and I'm laughing so hard at something with other group members that I remind myself that this too is an important aspect of the program. So to the newcomer, I say, consider participating in the fellowship. It can be an important part of your recovery. And if you're not ready, that's okay. If you keep coming back, eventually you will be. Good luck, Mary Lou. And I will put a link to the podcast she's talking about. It's not my podcast. I will put a link to that podcast in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 377. And that's it for the feedback this week. Nancy, I want to say, really, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story, your experience, strength, and hope with us. And we're going to close uh, with this third song that you picked, which is? Which is Joyce McPhee singing, I Loved Him First, Very Sad. Mother seeing her son for the first time and having to share him as he gets older and married. 
And as I think I said before, we've we've lost so much time and years of pain and struggle. And I can't take that back, nor can he. So this song got to me. I loved him first, and I held him first. And a place in my heart will always be his. From the first breath he breathed, when he first smiled at me, I knew the love of a mother always runs deep. Saturday, you might know what I'm going through. When a miracle smiles up at you, I loved him first. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.